Hello and welcome to the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Claire. I am a registered nutritionist and I also have a background in exercise science too. But most importantly, I focus solely on PCOS because I know how damn frustrating it can be. Uh, and especially when you don't know what's going on in your body and you're getting all of these weird symptoms and you're gaining weight without any change in your diet and, and everything else. Um, and yeah, I just want to help you understand what's going on in your body because I've been there and I've also been on the other side where I now understand it. I know, you know, the symptoms and I also know how good it feels when you can get control and improve some of those symptoms as well. So today's a Q&A mini podcast, Ask Me Anything, where you guys submit questions on our Instagram stories. So we're on Instagram at the PCOS Nutritionist and I answer them here. So today's question is the same for many of you. So this is for you guys, Lauren, Lorna, Deb, Julia and Allie asking, is intermittent fasting good for PCOS? So sometimes I'll be able to get through lots of different questions in these Q&A podcasts, but this is actually quite a meaty topic. And just because there are so many of you asking about it, I thought we'd devote the whole podcast today to answering just this one question. So intermittent fasting, let's just quickly talk about what that is. What I'm sure you guys mean by intermittent fasting is when you ask, is it good for PCOS? Is the when you will stop eating, you know, after dinner at say 8 p.m. and then you won't eat again until say 1 p.m. or 12 p.m. the next day. So effectively, you skip breakfast and have a longer time period of fasting over dinner. Um, there'll be a lot of purists out there who will tell you that's not intermittent fasting and it's got a different name. That's okay. We'll just ignore them because I know that's what you guys are talking about. So very, very, as I said, most commonly it'll be that you skip breakfast because socially it's pretty damn hard to skip dinner um, and I know that this is really what you're talking about. So intermittent fasting has gained popularity in PCOS because there's been a lot of research to show that intermittent fasting can be helpful for insulin resistance. Now if you've listened to the podcast before I'm sure you've heard me say that 80% of those of us with, those of us with PCOS have some problems with our insulin or insulin resistance. This means, so insulin is our hormone that governs our blood sugar. And in PCOS, in 80% of us, and that's 80% of us that are lean or whether you're lean or whether you're already living a healthy lifestyle, uh, kind of doesn't discriminate. So just if that's you and you're thinking that's not me, uh, it could be, <laughs> very much was me. So just to keep an open mind here, but insulin, so if the thought is, well, if we if intermittent fasting improves insulin resistance, and given that 80% of women with, with PCOS have insulin resistance, then surely it'd be good for PCOS. But I'm going to go against the grain of a lot of medical professionals and researchers who are saying that it should be good for PCOS and say, I don't think it is. And I think the two reasons for that is the research, some really interesting research, are specifically on women with PCOS and women, uh, and that women, a lot of the research on intermittent fasting and insulin is done on men, and we are not small men. And also too, because clinically, I don't see that, and also clinically, I see that there's a lot of disordered eating in women with PCOS. If you've had a history, especially a history of weight gain, then most women, including myself, have developed some quite disordered eating patterns. So what I'm talking about here is that, so although 20% of women with PCOS, I think that's the stat, have um, binge eating disorder, 
Okay, and so binge eating disorder is one of disordered eating patterns similar to anorexia and bulimia. Um, it's, it is a clinical diagnosis. Um, and you can go back and I've done a couple of podcasts on this. So you can go back and listen to those. But basically it is a pattern of um, out of feelings of being completely out of control, eating more than what you, you, know, you would or what would be feasible to eat in one meal, often then coupled with a period of restriction okay so you completely restrict all your food and then you'll have a you know massive binge often these are done in secret maybe they're planned um, but then coupled with those feelings of kind of self-loathing and remorse and and things and this pattern can go on and on and um, so I think there's you know definitely the clinical side but then there's also most women that I've worked with including myself have had a history of trying to restrict their diet because they're just suffering from this uncontrollable weight gain and trying everything they can to get control of that and for me that was very much a case of when you know following the guidelines I learned when studying my nutrition degree of just kind of eating eating everything in moderation and exercising and I was like well I'm already doing that I'm already training 20 hours a week I am definitely eating in moderation um, and I'm still putting on weight so of course you're going to go and look for other alternatives and often this means severe calorie restriction um, trying different diets because you're just trying to find the one thing that works and that is natural and that is you know that is something that so many of us have done because we want to take control of our health and that's okay but the result of that is, including me, that you end up with some slightly disordered eating patterns, especially when you are trying to override physiological responses like hunger and like sugar cravings and hangry attacks. And so when you wake up on a Monday morning and be like, right, this is the week I'm going to stick to the diet. And you go, right, well, the diet I'm sticking to at the moment is intermittent fasting and I am going to you know, not eat until 12. And so you get up and you get to work and you are so freaking hungry and you're sitting there and your stomach is churning and you're hungry and then you just, you can't concentrate and then you're like, oh, stuff it, I'm just going to have that scone. And then you have the scone and you're like, damn it, I failed already, it's only day one of the diet and I've already failed so I might as well just blow out and just eat whatever I want today and then I'll start again tomorrow or I'll start again next week, okay? And this is a common pattern that we fall into. So, um, you know, if you're... Like, if you're trying, you know, restricting when you're eating based on already a disordered eating kind of pattern, and that would be a disordered eating pattern, I would say, not clinical, but it's, you know, that's not, um, that is slightly disordered, then it's not going to be very successful if you then are trying to do this while you're still getting massive cravings and, and hunger and, and hangry attacks as well. So, that I think cannot be underestimated when it comes to PCOS. But secondly, and this is also really important, is I just don't think the research backs this up. So a lot of the research on insulin resistance, as I said, is done on men. And the reason for this is that it's so much easier to work with men in a study than what it is with women because you don't have any menstrual cycle to work or have to factor in and um, actually when I was talking with Professor Grant Schofield a few weeks ago when we did the podcast with him which was a few episodes ago before we started recording 
um, we were talking exactly about this and he said he said yeah actually Claire like when we're doing a study we you know we try to include women and then it just gets too difficult and so we just say you know we have to just work with men and especially you know in most research settings in universities you're recruiting participants and often you're recruiting generally it's the ones that have time which is university student males so that's a, a tiny group and and he said you know that's because we don't have to then factor in where they are in their menstrual cycle are they in their luteal phase or are they in their follicular phase um, we don't have to worry about that and so it's just easier you know when you're trying to control it lots of other factors in studies it just makes it so much easier if there's that one other variable you don't have to control for and I totally get that I understand why that happens but it's not right right and, and Grant you know he, he totally um, you know said that himself he's like this is not right what we do is not right but it, unfortunately that is what's happening at the moment and so when you know when you're looking at research papers you have to look at that and go well who was the study done on you know was it done on women was it done on women with PCOS and unless it was done on women with PCOS then it probably doesn't have a lot of validity for you so one study that was done on women with PCOS um, I think this was the University of Tel Aviv that did this one but they took 60 women with PCOS and they split them into two groups so one group had, so they both ate the same amount of calories, but one group had most of their calories or their biggest meal at breakfast, whereas the other group had their biggest meal at dinner. And they followed them to, for three months that, to see what happened. So they measured all of their um, levels at the start. So they measured like their insulin and their testosterone and their sex hormone binding globulin, which is a little, um, it's basically like a sponge that goes around and mops up the testosterone in your body. And they also measured um, how many women were ovulating. And then they gave them this meal plan for 12 weeks and then they measured that all at the end. And they found an incredible result. So what they found was that the women that had their biggest meal at breakfast, they decreased their insulin levels by 53%. They also decreased their testosterone levels by 50%. And given that testosterone is one of the hormones in women with PCOS that we have too much of and can disrupt everything from ovulation, can lead to hair growth and acne and hair loss, that's a massive thing to decrease your testosterone by a whole half. They also um, increased the sponges that go around and mop up testosterone by 100%. And by month three, 50% of the women in the breakfast group had ovulated compared with only 20% of those who were having their biggest meal at dinner. So in terms of those other stats like the insulin going down, testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin. So that was the breakfast ones that decreased that. The dinner, no change. Okay. So think about that. They're eating exactly the same meals. So they're eating exactly the same. They were, I think it was like, um, you know, they'd split their, the macronutrients up into carbohydrates, protein, and fat. And so they're both getting exactly the same macronutrients and same amount of calories, but just changing the time of day they're having it. The ones that were having most of it, at, like a big meal at breakfast, 50% reduction in insulin, 50% reduction in insulin, uh, sorry, in testosterone. And 50% ovulated compared to only 20% in the dinner group. So pretty incredible results. 
And this wasn't even in skipping dinner, and sorry, skipping breakfast entirely. These were, they were just having a much smaller meal at breakfast and a much, uh, and conversely, a much smaller meal at dinner. So it wasn't even complete fasting. It was just changing the quantities of that. So you imagine if you then go and skip breakfast entirely, then likely we might even have a more exaggerated result. So I, um, this is one of the reasons why I think that it's really, really interesting how our sex hormones, like our ovulation, is governed just by the time that we eat. And the researchers obviously thought this was quite interesting as well because they looked into this and said, well, I wonder why this is. And this comes back to our sex hormones aren't released. So like our sex hormones, like luteinizing hormone that govern uh, ovulation, aren't just released willy-nilly throughout the day, right? They have a, a rhythm in themselves, like we have a circadian rhythm when we wake up and when we go to sleep. So when we, when our brain recognizes that it's nighttime, it'll start releasing melatonin, which is our sleep hormone, and that helps, helps make us sleepier so we can get to sleep. Then um, early in the morning, our cortisol will rise so that we can get up, wake up feeling hopefully refreshed after a sleep. Okay, and when these hormones are out, you know it, okay? Like when your cortisol is, is out, you'll be lying there tired and wired because your cortisol is too high at night and your melatonin is not high enough. And same thing, you wake up in the morning feeling like you've been hit by a bus because your cortisol is not high enough and so it hasn't allowed your body to really wake up. Okay, so that is how our circadian rhythm is, is governed. But similarly, our sex hormones have a similar rhythm. And this can't be ignored. We do know this happens, and so we can't ignore that. Um, things like changing our eating pattern could signal to our body that there's a problem. Maybe that can signal to our body that food is scarce. And in our, you know, the way that our bodies are still wired is for survival and when there's feast and famine. And when there's famine, your body's like, oh, this is not a particularly good time to be bringing a baby into the world. So... We're just going to stop ovulation right there because we don't quite know what's going on and we're just a little bit risk adverse. So it makes sense then if our, we eat you know, a big meal in the morning, then our body's like, ah, oh, cool, well this is, we're not in a famine, this is good, yes, let us ovulate today. We also know that our hormones that govern when we ovulate or not are not just produced willy-nilly all through the day, right? They have a very distinct pattern. And this actually is very similar to our sleep and wake cycle, our circadian rhythm. So when we are our, you know, over the nighttime, our luteinizing hormone is high and higher than during the day. So it fits a very similar pattern to our sleep and wake cycle. But, and this is really fascinating to me, I don't know about you guys, but they have found that in women with PCOS, that not only do we produce too much luteinizing hormone, so I'm going to, yeah, I'll get into a bit about what that is in a second in case you, I've lost you, just hang with me. But what um, that is, is, we not only produce too much, but it's in the, at the wrong times. So instead of it being overnight, like it should be, most of it being overnight, ours is delayed, and so it's mostly kind of like later in the morning. And um, so that's why the researchers in that other study looking at the difference between big breakfast and big dinner, they proposed that having the big breakfast kind of likely, the reason they thought it worked was because it kind of like reset the clock and helped 
bring that hormone um, profile back to what it should be. And this isn't a stretch at all. We, the research has shown that luteinizing hormone is in our ovulation is significantly impacted by food or lack of food specifically. How do we know this? Well, you only have to look at reports of, say, like the Holocaust and how women, you know, lost their periods when they weren't getting any food. Um, but also, as well, it's been backed up in the research. So there has been studies that have shown that when you basically put women on starvation diets, so very small amount of calories, um, their hormones will be disrupted. So one study that I remember, they... Um, they basically put women, pretty much starved them, I think they were only getting a couple of hundred calories a day. Um, and it wasn't for very long, it was only like five days. And during that time they were measuring all their hormones. And what they found was that though when they starved them, that suppressed their, or you know, reduced their luteinizing hormone. Or actually, so luteinizing hormone, sorry for you guys, I'm, you're probably like, Claire, what are you talking about? So this is the hormone that helps you ovulate. So when, if you ever look at a chart of a menstrual cycle, you'll see all these squiggly lines, this graph, and it's a little bit hard to understand. But basically what happens is that in the first part of your cycle, you get a rise in estrogen that helps to develop your egg. And then another one called follicle stimulating hormone, same thing, it helps to, you know, develop your egg. It's ready for ovulation, ready for it to be released. And then... When your body determines that your egg is the correct size, it spikes this hormone called luteinizing hormone, which shoots up. I kind of think of it like, like a pinball machine. You know when you just like press down those bottom flap things, I don't know what you call them, and they shoot the pinball up into the machine. Kind of like that, okay? Imagine that happening and it like just shooting the egg out into your fallopian tube. Isn't that a fantastic like visual anyway that's kind of what luteinizing hormone does and so it needs to get to like a certain level to enable it to shoot that hormone out it's kind of like if you press on the pinball machine and those little like flappy bits only go up a little bit you know if you like mistime it and then you just like the kind of ball just kind of droops up a little bit and comes back down that would be what it's like if your luteinizing hormone is, is affected and what they've found in these studies is that even after just five days, that low energy starvation kind of diet, a few hundred calories, um, really disrupted that luteinizing hormone. And it didn't really recover very quickly, even when they then went and gave them heaps. So they basically put them from um, like a less than 500 calories, then on to 4,000 calories. So they did this aggressive starvation diet and this aggressive refeeding diet. But what they found was that that aggressive refeeding had no effect on um, that luteinizing hormone and getting it back to back to basics or back to back to normal. So we can see what that you know that the energy availability, especially in the morning, has a big impact on whether our body decides to ovulate or not. And I would say that we don't know nearly enough as what we need to, right? Like the research is pretty damn sparse. Um, again, probably because it, it makes for quite complex research. So, but I would say based on this and just based on clinical experience, I would say most women that I work with have had greater success by having breakfast and a bigger breakfast than what they do by skipping it. And remember that this is not just about pregnancy and ovulation, right? For those of us that that's not a goal at the moment, 
we're still talking about here that group that had the bigger breakfast decreased their testosterone levels by 50%, okay, and increased those sponges that go and mop testosterone up by 100%. So if you, you know, if you could do that, then that's going to have a massive impact on your other symptoms, your acne, your hair growth, your hair loss, because in all of those symptoms, what's happening there is testosterone is getting into your skin, it's causing your glands to overproduce oil, and that's leading to the development of acne. And it's also getting into your hair follicles on your face and turning those little soft baby fuzzy hairs into big black terminal hairs. It's also getting into your scalp and it is killing off those hair follicles causing that hair to fall out. Okay, so remember this is not about pregnancy, but ovulation and getting a period is also a really good sign that things are working quite well um, and that's not, that's something that we need to focus on rather than it just being about getting pregnant okay so for those of you that ovulation or that pregnancy is not a not a goal for you at the moment that's okay it doesn't take away from any of this research so I also know that there'll be a lot of you that are sitting here listening and being like well intermittent fasting did wonders for me and that's fabulous I'm not trying to take anything away from you there but when it comes to most women that I work with with PCOS, skipping breakfast would definitely not be one of the things that I would do with them because of the reasons that I've just outlined. So there we go. I hope that that helped you understand a bit more about the skipping breakfast side, intermittent fasting. Um, as I said, that's kind of what we focused on today was just that component, not any of the other types of fasting um, because I think that that is a, probably the most common um, so if you want to know more, if you're like after this, you're like, okay, totally understand that. But what next then, Claire? So what do you recommend? And I do get this question a lot. You're like, okay, great information, but I'm now frustrated because I don't know where to go and I don't know what to eat. And what do I eat for breakfast then? And it's like, well, this all depends on what your root cause is. So before I give any dietary advice to women with PCOS, I firstly want to know, for example, do you have any insulin issues because, or do you have high stress hormones? Because if you do, then my advice is going to be quite different to those that don't. It would be like me taking my broken car to the mechanic and he or she says to me, well, okay, here you go. Here is these parts. We'll try these new parts on it and see if that helps. You'd be like, um excuse me, that sounds like a really expensive and very long process to figure out what's going to help. Why don't you just actually find out what the problem is first? And then we can figure out what the right part is. Or maybe even I don't even need any parts. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? And so exactly the same when it comes to your health. It's like, well, what supplements should I take? wouldn't know until I know what the issue is because they all do a different role in your body and so if your insulin's not working then you're going to take a very different array of supplements to what you are if your stress hormones aren't working or your thyroid's not working okay so this is exactly what we do in our program the peace first protocol you don't have to know this first before you come and join us this is what we do in week one we identify what those systems are that aren't working optimally and then over the coming weeks we then tweak your diet and lifestyle and supplements and everything else to fit that okay so we're actually giving you what you need rather than going oh well 
why don't we try remove gluten? Yeah, I've heard that's good for PCOS. Yeah, okay, we'll do that for everybody. It's like, well, no, if that's not going to make the biggest difference, it's not a problem, then why would we do that? You're just restricting a whole bunch of foods that we don't need to. Or, right, we'll just try these supplements. We'll try DIM and Vitex, and I've you know, heard these on online are good for PCOS, or someone said they were good for PCOS, maybe even a, a paper. It's like, well, yeah, but what part of that? So once we know what the actual problem is, then we can come up with a plan and solution to fix that. But without knowing what the problem is first, we're kind of shooting in the dark, okay? So if you want to know more about that, then head to thepcosnutritionist.com forward slash the PCOS protocol or just hit program from the main menu. But thanks again for listening and thanks to you guys again for all of your questions, specifically to you guys, Ali, Deb, Lauren, uh, Lorna and Julia. Thank you for your question about intermittent fasting. I'm sure that it helped so many other women who are also asking the same thing. So thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Until then, stay home and stay safe. Now stand by for our disclaimer. The information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS Nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat, or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.